Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy this sermon podcast. Well, Merry Early Christmas. Uh, Derek Lewandowski here with you. I'm so excited uh, to begin this Advent series with you. Uh, We've titled the series The Christmas Cast. And what we're going to do is we're just going to look at some of the different characters in in the Christmas story and what they teach us about the gospel. And here's what we're going to find. We're going to find that they were not the all-stars, you know, the celebrities, the first-round draft picks, people that you would think would be the stars of the movie in a sense. You know who they were? They were simple, humble, broken people. And so tonight, we're going to start by looking at probably a very obscure character in the Christmas story. I I actually wonder and doubt maybe if you've ever heard a a Christmas, you know, Advent message on this character. We're going to start with a woman that appears in the genealogy of Christ. Her name is Rahab. And so we're going to read in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And what we find here in the beginning of Matthew, as, as we begin sort of the Christmas Uh, Advent narrative here in the book of Matthew is this is Joseph's genealogy. This traces uh, Joseph's ancestors to Christ. And then the book of Luke has another genealogy, and that one uh, lays out Mary's uh, lineage. And so here we are, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse. This is God's word. Let's take a moment and pray. Father, we thank you for what you show us about yourself in this text and in the story of the coming of Christ. So easy to miss here, Lord, what it means that Rahab is included in this genealogy. We pray that you'd open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word as the psalmist once prayed. We pray it again today in Jesus' name, amen. It'd be really easy to miss what is happening here and the significance of this woman's name being mentioned in the genealogy of Christ, the history, the ancestry of Christ. Her, her name appeared on Ancestry.com, you know, on Jesus' account. It's amazing. Do you know who this woman is? Let's find out, and we'll discover that not only is this a beautiful story, but a gospel message encoded right here in the, what some might consider, boring genealogies of Christ. I'll tell you right now who she was. Rahab was a prostitute, but is mentioned as one of the ancestors of the Son of God. And it's absolutely eyebrow-raising that Matthew names Rahab in Jesus' family tree. She was a woman from Canaan. She was a Canaanite woman. And what we find out about these people in the Old Testament is that they were Israel's enemy and therefore God's enemy. They were the enemies of God's people and had severely mistreated God's people throughout the Exodus in the Old Testament narrative of Israel. Their capital city was Jericho, and um, that was the place where a significant 
story in the Old Testament happened that we're going to look at in a few minutes. The Canaanites not only rejected the God of Israel, Jehovah, but they served false gods, the famous false gods, Baal, who appear throughout the Old Testament, and Asherah, who they believed were fertility gods. And the worship of Baal and Asherah included child sacrifice, which sometimes meant burning children alive, a detestable, horrific practice. Their worship also included ritual sex, as they believed that though Asherah was Baal's mother in the mythology, she was also his mistress. So ritual sex was practiced near the Asherah poles in the hope that they would join Baal and Asherah together to bring them prosperity in their fields and in war. God did not want his people influenced by them. And you may remember the famous story, if you remember some of your Sunday school stories and lessons of Elijah calling fire down on the altar and a a day of great destruction for the prophets of Baal. Same, Same God, same false God, same religion. Further, the Canaanites were the ones who were murdering the weak Israelites on their journey through the wilderness. Many times they would slaughter any sick or weak elderly women or children who would lag behind, and they never repented. So finally, after 40 years, God said, that's enough. And it's likely that Rahab, as a Canaanite woman who lived in the capital city of Jericho, where it was sort of the, you know, the, the centerpiece of uh, the worship of Baal and Asherah, it's likely that she made her living as a prostitute providing paid sex for Baal and Asherah worshipers. These were called temple prostitutes. So her service of prostitution would have been seen by the city as religious and maybe even sacred. So as far as like her class in society, it may not have been as low, it would, as, low as prostitution would be viewed in the Western world. In that society, it was so attached to uh, the religion and the worship of Baal and Asherah. Uh, perhaps she was seen as a sacred woman in some twisted way. In Canaan and the ancient world, however, there were also the kinds of prostitutes we're more familiar with in our society, men and women that sell their bodies for money. In this ancient day, what would often happen with women who were no longer under the care of father or husband because of separation and death and things that would happen, it would be considered a curse in ancient societies. And so if they were without a breadwinner, sometimes these women would provide for themselves through prostitution. Rahab may have been a combination of these two kinds of prostitutes, a temple prostitute and you know, what maybe we'd consider a traditional prostitute. Either way, it's clear that Rahab was not in a good place when we meet her and find her. Pick up the story in Joshua chapter two, verse one. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel had come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. They knew what they were there to do. But the woman who had taken... The woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I do not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up on the roof and hid them 
with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way out to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and the fear of you has fallen upon us, and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, she said, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in, heavens, in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my household and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men of Israel said to her, our lives for yours even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. She let them down by rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window with which you let us down and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. That's a good chunk of scripture there, but I wanted you to hear the story of Rahab and what sets up what happened when Israel came and attacked Jericho. What we see here is that Rahab stands apart from her idolatrous people. She somehow knows, and we know how she knows, it's the grace of God at work in her, isn't it? She somehow knows that the God of Israel is the one true God. Back in verse 11, she said, for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. As we fast forward the story, we learn in Joshua 6 that God spoke to Joshua and the people of Israel to attack Jericho. This is the very famous story in the Bible that children become very familiar with in kids' church. The way they attacked the city was to march around it seven times, blow a trumpet, and then the walls would fall down. It was a miracle. It was a miracle to everyone who saw it and heard it, and everyone would have known that it was the God of Israel, not Baal. Yeah, he's greater than Baal. He's greater than Asherah. That it was the God of Israel alone who gave them the victory, that he would have the glory. Now, if you've seen the Veggie Tales version of this, uh, it, the Canaanites <clears throat> were throwing slushies at them from the top of the wall, uh, even though uh, I, think that, I think that was an artistic license. I don't think that actually happened. But here's what happened to Rahab when they came to the city. We pick up the story when Israel was forwarding to attack and take the city of Jericho. But the two men who had spied out to the land, to them Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father and her mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. 
And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Now, when the scripture mentions Rahab, she's almost always called Rahab the prostitute, except in Matthew's genealogy. Matthew calls her Rahab, the mother of Boaz. People are often known more by their weaknesses in scripture than by their strengths. Have you ever thought about that? The blind man Bartimaeus, doubting Thomas, the gathering demoniac, Rahab the prostitute. I wonder who you would be. You know, I might be Derek the afraid, Derek the anxious. The good news is that God redefined Rahab and gave her a new life and a new identity. From fallen to chosen, from bad girl to bride, from mess to mother, from whore to whole, from enemy of God to ancestor of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. What a beautiful story of redemption. And the book of Revelation tells us that God has a new name for all of us. He has a new name for you and a new name for me. The old has passed away, the new has come. We have a new identity in Christ. And the story of Rahab is a beautiful story of grace and rescue from being directly in the crosshairs of the judgment of God that was on this city. Rahab went on to live among the Jewish people and she married a man named Salmon. He was the great, great grandfather of King David. This tells you how deeply she became a part of God's people. 28 generations later, the Bible tells us, Jesus was born to Mary and Joseph. Now, for the rest of our time, there's two things that I think we need to see in this story and in this text that are going to encourage us to see Jesus in the story, to see the gospel. Number one, I want us to see the duration of this story. Not only what happened you know, in, in the Old Testament narrative of the spies going in and meeting with Rahab and the story of taking Jericho and her being saved from that, that but also the, what, 30 generations later <clears throat> and all that God did in this story that suddenly appears in Matthew chapter one and we see the beauty of her redeemed life. It was almost 30 generations from the birth of Christ to where she'd be mentioned forever as a redeemed ancestor of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I can't see 30 generations ahead. Can you? No one can. That's why we need to look at this story and allow it to deepen our trust in the Lord who is the author of the stories of our lives. And he's the author, the Bible says, and finisher of our faith. In seeing the duration, the timeline of this story, it helps us see the author of this story, and there can only be one, because there's only one author who's alive for 30 generations, and that is God, our Father, the author. This story should give us immense faith and to trust God and his sovereignty 
and his plans in our lives, even though sometimes we don't see what's going on. And by the way, that's what makes him God. The fact that he knows things I don't know and sees things I don't see, he's in a sense way up high in the mountain and he has perspective. He can look down into the valley or the valleys where we live and where we suffer and where we go through pain and we can't see the forest for the trees sometimes. And, and yet God is, is seated above and he sees the whole timeline. He sees the whole story. He sees how everything is connected. And as our faith rises up and we believe in who he is and accept uh, his plan for our lives, we can begin to see, the Bible says, as we're seated with Christ in heavenly places, we can begin to see with a different perspective that his glory is working through all of it, that God, as Paul said, works all things for the good for those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. If you have faith in Christ, that's you and that's me and that's Rahab. This whole idea of the duration of this story reminded me of another story I heard at a missions conference a few years back. It's a story, sort of, of a man named Watkin Roberts, and I'm going to start with Watkin Roberts. In 1909, there was a story that went out all across the world of this savage tribe in India called the Hmar tribe, H-M-A-R, the Hmar tribe. And the reason that this story became famous was there was a picture that was published, and this was also published in the London Times near where Watkin Roberts lived, of hanging heads, because that's how you'd know that you were near their territory in India if you came upon these heads hanging from trees. That was sort of their stop sign. Hey, don't, it wouldn't have to take much convincing for me. Okay, I'll go the other way. And so Watkin Roberts saw this story, just taken in by it, he was intrigued by it, and he felt very badly for these smart people that they were so savage and so far from God that they would live like this. He began to pray for them. And so he went down to a local mission society and he said, I want to send a Bible to the Hamar people. Do you have a Bible in the Hamar language? And they said, we do not, but we have a, another dialect of India from uh, sort of nearby. Uh, we have that translation. We can, maybe you could take that. So he did, he took it. He wrapped it in brown paper and, and he just wrote Hamar people. And he sent that to India. Now, months went by, of course, you know, this is a day when you can't, text or call uh, countries far away like we can now. But months and months later, he got an envelope back. And it was addressed to him in very primitive handwriting, Watkin Roberts. And he opened the letter and it said, would you please come and tell us about this book? <laughs> what would you do? <laughs> uh, he didn't know how to react. Do, do I go to them? Do I, you know, do, do I become a missionary? And in fact, he decided he would simply just respond. He saw this as an opportunity from the Lord and just go. So he took his life savings. He bought passage to India. He, he landed in Calcutta and he said, hey, will someone take me up to the Hamar people? And they're all like, are you kidding me? We're, we know who these people are. We're not going to go up there. He finally found somebody who would take him as far as the hanging heads and they dropped him off. And here's this young guy in a suit with a, you know, a little satchel you know, held over his shoulder. And just picture this. this. This young Englishman in a foreign country now under these hanging heads. And uh, now he's alone because the driver dropped him off and he was gone. And the Hamar people start to come. And he took out the letter and he showed, I'm the guy. I'm, you asked me to come and tell you about the book. Of course, they didn't speak English. 
And so they, they, they welcomed him into their area and, and uh, he's thinking, how do I tell them about Jesus? There's one guy who claimed to know English, but everything was getting lost in translation. And, and so he, he, he just struggled so much. And that night he dreamt that he acted out the gospel. Uh, and so the next morning he got up and he, he decided to try to act out the gospel story. How do you do that? Creation, Adam and Eve, the fall, you know, the coming of Christ, the virgin birth. How do you act that stuff out? So he did his best and right in the middle of it, uh, an armed guard of British soldiers came and surrounded him with guns and they said, you're out of here, Mr. Roberts. You're in a dangerous place and we will not allow you to stay. And they took him back and put him on a ship and sent him back to England. And can you imagine what a fool Watkins Roberts felt like? You know, nobody Oh, n- nobody understood what I was saying. I spent my life savings. What a waste. But it wasn't a waste because somebody caught it. His name was Chowinga. He somehow caught the gospel by the Holy Spirit. He caught it. And he, he developed a very simple faith and he, and he made a commitment to God that if you give me a son, I will give my son to your work. Well, that was 1910. And in 1927, Chowinga had a son, and he named him Rochunga. And when he was a couple of years old, he took him to some local missionaries, and he told them the story. And they took him in as their own. In 1952, Rochunga enrolled in Wheaton College. And there's a quote from this time. He said, My grandfather was a headhunter, but by God's grace, today I am a heart hunter. In 1962, he translated the Bible into the Hamar language. In 1973, Rochunga founded Bibles for the World. In 2010, this organization circulated 100 million Bibles around the world. And in 2015, Rochunga's son, John, became president. Wow, do you see see the timeline of this story? How could Watkin Roberts have had any conceivable thought or idea that his Simple act of faith, radical act of faith, would play out decades and decades later to result in people all over the world receiving Bibles and having the Bible translated into other languages and that it would play out like this. Do do you see that God sees what you don't see and he knows what you don't know? How could Rahab have known? How could those spies have known that in some way they were uh, preserving the lineage of Christ? that the Christ would come from this? And how could uh, Watkin Robertson or even Chewinga know that through Chewinga and his son Rochunga, in a sense, Jesus Christ would be birthed into the hearts of many people. Faith in Christ would be birthed into the hearts of many people in the days to follow. Trust the sovereignty of God with your suffering, with your story, with your pain, with your confusion, with your doubts. He's writing a story that we can't see, but we will see it. There's a million reasons God does everything he does. Sometimes he shows us a few of them, but in the days to come, we'll we'll understand and we'll see it all because God is working through it all. So that's the first thing I wanted you to see from this story, just the duration, you know, the, the author of the story. And the second and last thing I want you to see in the story is the message. And the message is this, that God redeems prostitutes, rebels, weaklings, and losers. He redeems them, and he makes them part of his story. Hebrews 7.25 says, God saves us to the uttermost. That means to to the utter final degree that one could be saved, to the most complete degree that someone could be saved. God saves us to that degree. 
So this, this means he doesn't just let you in. Yeah, you can get in, but just hang out on the edge. You, you're not really part of us. I'm just kind of letting you hang out on the fringe. No, he lets you in by his grace and he flips your life. He makes you whole. Isn't that just like God to pick Rahab? Why would he do it? Because he's merciful, he's gracious, and in the end, he gets all the glory, doesn't he? Paul wrote that God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And guess what? You and me, we're in that same family and fellowship. So, congratulations! Welcome to the fellowship of the weak. That's us. We've got no boast except Christ. You see, Rahab is naturally what you and I are spiritually. We've all committed spiritual adultery. We've given ourselves to other loves. We've lived spiritually promiscuous lives. We've given ourselves over to idols and worshiped false gods. We've made much of created things and too little of our creator. So why does God save her? And how does God save her? Did you catch the part of the story about the scarlet cord? Well, of course, this is my tie, but use your imagination. The scarlet cord. Having the scarlet cord save them. When that was hanging in the doorway, or in the window, they recognized it and they said, we're gonna show grace to that house. It's reminiscent of the Passover story in the book of Exodus, isn't it? When the death angel would pass over the homes of those who marked their door with a lamb's blood. Rahab had the scarlet cord. And all this should make us think of the cross, where there would be one who would hang like a scarlet cord from a tree outside Jerusalem. The scarlet blood of Jesus flowed down and we were saved. And I want to ask you a question during this Advent season, as we're remembering Christ and celebrating Christmas, is that scarlet cord hanging in the window of your heart? Has the blood of the Passover lamb been applied to the door of your heart? Because the scarlet cord was in her window, she experienced no judgment. There was no wrath left for her. And that's what Jericho was facing. Judgment for a wicked people that had constantly harmed God's people, and defied Jehovah, the God of the Hebrews, and abused his people so much. She was among those people. She was in the crosshairs of God's righteous wrath and anger. But because of the scarlet cord, there was no wrath left for her. She escaped the crosshairs. This doesn't mean she was innocent. It means she was forgiven. The gospel teaches this, that you and I are more wicked than we ever dared believe, but we're more loved than we ever dared hope at the very same time, and that's Rahab. How could a holy, just God not only forgive a woman like this, but redeem her life to the point where she's mentioned in the ancestry of Christ? How could he offer this grace to Rahab? It's because of this reason that many years later, there was one who hung like a scarlet cord from the cross. Jesus changed places with her. The wrath of God fell on him. Jesus Christ fell to the ground in judgment. 
and people like Rahab didn't have to. Rahab and her family left Jericho and that scarlet cord stayed right there in the window, crumbling with the city. And when Jesus hung on that cross, he said three very famous words that I, I want to leave us with today. I want you thinking about these words. Jesus said, it is finished. And we love that, we love that, that, that phrase, we love that sentence, we love that, that thing that Jesus said, but what, what does it mean? What is it? Whatever it is, is finished. What was Jesus talking about? He was talking about the work for our salvation, to redeem his people, his church, to purchase our souls with his blood. And salvation is two things, justification and adoption. What is justification? Justification means that we are declared right in the eyes of the law. We're declared righteous in the eyes of the law. Can we talk for a moment about that word righteousness? Because I think many, many people <clears throat> laugh when they hear it, thinking it sounds maybe like Shakespeare. You know, has thou attained unto the ways of righteousness? You know, that, that's kind of, it, it feels like an old King James word. <clears throat> when the Bible uses this word, what it means is to have a right relationship with God's law. Now, Maybe you've been hearing me talk about God's wrath and you've thought, man, that sounds really harsh. This is the very reason I don't like religion. Really? God's wrath is upon me? Is that true? Well, first of all, if you don't see that, you'll never see the beauty and the glory of the cross. And you'll fail to understand that God never attempts anything that is unnecessary. And apparently you and I were so bad that we needed the Son of God himself to come and die for us. And this is... This is where understanding righteousness can become helpful and beautiful. If someone breaks the law, the judge, if he's a good judge, is obligated to hold that lawbreaker accountable. The judge has what you might call judicial wrath for the criminal. It's the moral obligation of a just judge appointed by the state to punish those who break the law. That's what holds our society together and that's the great hope of anyone who has been wronged is that they would get justice and that the judicial wrath of the judge and jury would be, would be enforced on the person who committed the crime. So the judge in a sense says, I'm opposed to you. I stand against you. I'm required to punish you. If you think about it, the judge, let's say the, the judge even in, in you know, natural terms, maybe the judge knows the accused, might even feel bad for them. He might say something like, sheesh, I know this, I know this guy's dad. You know, he's, he's my friend's son. It's a shame how his life is turning out. But even though he feels bad and might even like his father like him, a good judge will maintain that righteous judicial wrath and punish the one who broke the law. It's the same way with God. <clears throat> the only way to escape this judicial wrath that he has because he is good and because he is holy because he does all things well. The only way to escape this wrath is to obtain somehow righteousness. And the Bible is very clear. None of us have it and none of us can earn it. But here's the good news. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 21, <clears throat> it says that God made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. The gospel offers 
righteousness. It offers a right relationship to God's law outside of our performance, outside of our work, but through Christ's work and Christ's performance. And that's why he said it is finished. The death of Jesus justifies you if you put faith in him. But if you trust in yourself, then you're ultimately trusting in your own morality and your own righteousness. And the Bible's clear. We're empty. Our hands are empty. The only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. Through God, or through Jesus, God saves us from his own wrath by placing it on his own son. John Stott said this, the glory of the gospel is this, that the one from whom we needed to be saved is the one who has saved us. And I want you to listen to um, John chapter three, verses 16 through uh, 18, and I'm looking for my Bible. I think it's right in front of you. Sorry, a little little man behind the curtain here. John chapter three, famous text, but I want you to listen to what it says afresh in light of the story. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Do you see what this text is saying in John? We're in Jericho. This world is Jericho. We're under the judicial wrath of God. We're in the crosshairs of God's wrath. But if you put the scarlet cord in your window, you shall be saved. That's justification. We're justified in the eyes of God. We're justified in the eyes of his law through the sacrifice of Christ. And secondly, we're adopted. And this is an amazing truth. We're not only forgiven, like that would be enough, right? Like, hey, I'm forgiven, it's wonderful. We're also brought into God's family. Let's say the same judge who acquits you in a human court adopts you. Wouldn't that be an absurd kindness? You know, if the judge is like, well, has the jury reached a verdict? Yes, we find the accused not guilty. Well, apparently you're not guilty in the eyes of this court. You know, I had a little free time while they were out deliberating and I decided uh, to fill out the adoption papers and adopt you as well. So hop in the car, son, let's go. I mean, that would be an absurd scenario. Yet that is what the gospel teaches. We are justified in the eyes of heaven's court, in the eyes of the law, and we are adopted. We're brought into God's family. What amazing grace. It is finished. How finished? Is there a little work left for us to do? Let's look at one final scripture. Isaiah 55, verses 10 through 12. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and make it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to be empty, but it will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You shall go out with joy and, lead, and be led forth with peace and the mountains and hills will burst in a song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. The father likens his word of grace to snow which comes down and covers everything. Now, I know you Tennesseans might not have as frequent of a picture of that as I did when I lived in New York, but I remember one morning looking out my window when I was still in New York at the snow-covered fields and thinking it looks so peaceful and serene. And yet I knew underneath that snow, it was actually in the landscape. There were some very unsightly things in my yard. There was some trash uh, across the road. There was a barrel uh, in, 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 near the, the tree line. 
but it was all covered with snow. And I remember thinking, I can't even see it now. And that's what God's word of grace is like. It covers us. And as far as the east is from the west, he's removed our sins from us. He doesn't see our sin anymore. I once heard this real life story in closing that helped me a great deal to understand what Jesus had done and what love and sacrifice really mean. It happened in the early 1900s in the state of California. Two Chinese brothers lived together in San Francisco. They were immigrants. The older of the two was of good character and high moral standards. However, the the younger brother was into all the wrong things. And one day when the younger Chinese man was gambling on the street, a fight broke out between him and another man and it ended with this Chinese man killing his opponent. Wanting to run and hide from the law, he went home and he put his blood-stained clothes away in a closet and ran out. The older brother returned home from work and found the blood-stained clothes. He caught wind of what was going on and he concluded that his kid brother was in deep trouble and so he quickly put on the blood-stained clothes himself to protect his brother. The court ordered capital punishment and the older brother, wearing his brother's bloody clothes, was executed by firing squad in exchange, in replacement as a substitute for his brother. After getting wind of his brother's death, the younger Chinese man came to the judge and he pleaded, I'm, I'm guilty, I was the real killer. You know what the judge said? The crime has been paid for. We can't do anything to you, you're free to go. Jesus wore our bloody clothes. He wore Rahab's bloody clothes so that she could be redeemed and saved, so that you and I could be redeemed and saved. Where did our sin go? It wasn't forgotten. It was transferred to Christ's wounds. That's the Christmas story. It's not just about a cute baby in a manger. It's about the wounded Savior on the cross. Let's worship the God of Rahab. This is the Christmas story. This is the Advent. It's what it's all about, the story of grace. As the Christmas hymn says, Long lay the world in sin and ever pining Till he appeared and the soul felt its worth Oh, holy night, what a Savior, what love, what a God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel, which means good news. Help our hearts to receive it. Lord, and I pray for those who have not Uh, put the scarlet cord in their window that they would reach out, Lord, with their heart's hands. They'd reach out in faith and reach for a saving Christ. Flee from their own morality as a means of righteousness or a means of salvation. Flee from their family pedigree or their, their record, good or bad, and flee to grace and flee to the cross. And we thank you, Lord, that though Rahab came before Christ, we are in the family lineage of Christ after you came because you saved us. We love you because you first loved us. Help us to celebrate and worship you during this season. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.